welcome to the weekly sermon podcast for Muncie First Brethren Church with Pastor Jim Garrett. This week we continue our series in the Gospel of John. John the Baptist was questioned on who gave him the authority to baptize. He responds that he is preparing for the Son of God. Here's Pastor Garrett. It has been, uh, you know, it's really intriguing to go through the Gospel of John here and to see things with new eyes, with a fresh perspective. Um, Not that there's something different there. It's just that as, as you go through these things at different times within your walk with the Lord, He is revealing more and more of who He is and and what it means to trust him and to take him at his word. And that's what I'm seeing again as we go through this Gospel of John. And it's an amazing journey. As we look now at what John the Baptist, we left last week with this questioning of John the Baptist. Who are you? Are are you Elijah? And he says, no, I'm not Elijah. Well, are you the prophet that was talked about in Deuteronomy? And no, I'm not him. And then, it, and then we looked at this strange construction in the, in the format of what he said, that he said he confessed, he did not deny, he confessed, I'm not the Messiah. But with this strange construction of the words and, and the phrase, we have the introduction of his proclamation to say, but this, this is what all of this is about. I'm not here for any other reason. I'm not here for any other purpose except to point to this person who is the Messiah. We know that even from uh, just a a natural perspective, John probably knew who Jesus was. We know that they were related, and and we don't know to what extent they had interaction leading up to Jesus' baptism, but John knew that 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 there was this this revelation that God was providing based on his promise, based on his desire for relationship, that God was making this happen. That's going to be what we see today in this proclamation that and the, the request, behold the Lamb of God. Because even though it was said 2,000 years ago, it speaks through every generation, through all the centuries, everything that's gone before us and everything that comes after us, it is still the request and the the invitation of God to behold his lamb. And so John's proclamation starts with this very profound, uh, um, this this very profound definition of of, uh, and, and precision with which he says to look at Jesus. You know, it was interesting because I think from our perspective, when we hear the phrase Lamb of God, we're like, yeah, we know what that means. We have this passage and we see in Revelation and we see Peter reflect on the blood of the Lamb in his letters. But it's interesting because as you go back into that context, they didn't have the familiarity with the phrase that we do. In fact, when you start looking at commentators, you can come up with as many as eight or nine different places that the lamb motif comes out and, and could be referenced. But I, I guess for me, as, I, as I've looked at and looked at all of those different places that it emerges, it, comes, it becomes very clear to me that, that John the Baptist, led by the Holy Spirit, was declaring something that was 
encapsulating all of those different themes from all those different angles. Whether it was Abraham and Isaac when he was, was on the mountain, Mount Moriah, and was supposed to sacrifice his son, and God provides the ram. Whether it's the lamb of, of Passover, the lamb of Isaiah, the lamb uh, and the sacrifices out of Leviticus, uh, the Jeremiah 11 reference. There's all kinds of references to the lamb, but none are, 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 are complete definition of behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Passover lamb wasn't for a sin sacrifice. It was for a provision when the death angel passed by that, that they would be protected as they trusted God for the sacrifice that was provided there. But see, in each of those, you have a reflection of God's promise and his provision, and then the fullness resting on Jesus. He is the complete sacrifice. And I really think that's what is at, is at play here. He's not trying to be... Uh, um, where we'll see in other places where when he quotes from Isaiah, whether it's John, the one who writes the book, or even John the Baptist, when he said, you know, I'm just the voice in the wilderness, making, making these straight paths for the promise and provision of the Lord, um, this, this becomes his proclamation that Jesus is the one. And that's why it has to be so clear to us. And so they're, they're going to ask him, so, so, you know, what do you know? What, what's going on? What's, what's driving all of this? Remember that clarity that came out that Jesus narrates God. Jesus is the, the story of God. He took on human flesh, and it says that he exegetes. He, he, he puts God on display. We see that in other places, in Colossians, and. Hebrews, where he's the exact representation of the Father. Later in John, when asked, we just want to see the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. He will, he will make those statements over and over again. But that phrase that he narrates God, that what we are to know about God is revealed in Jesus. That's why it's such an important uh, you know, the, the truth that's contained there is so important and so vital. You're not doing, and I know I say this often, well, we're not doing anyone any favors if we pull away from that message and, and coddle some kind of other belief. At the moment you coddle some other type of belief other than the, the fullness of life and, and that he's the way, the truth, and the life in Jesus Christ alone, you are coddling unbelief. You understand that? There's no, there's no middle ground. There's no place that God says, well, here's my son. Here's the fullness of who I am, and, and all the fullness of deity dwells in him. But, you know, if you come up with something else that you're comfortable with, let's run with that. And, and I'm being a little sarcastic, but there's literally no place that you will find that kind of mindset on display from the Father. And so at the moment we pull away from Jesus and somehow say, well, maybe, you know, maybe some of these other belief systems have, you know, have something. They can, they can have this relationship with God. At the moment you believe or, or entertain that notion, you are coddling and entertaining unbelief. 
Not just in Jesus, but in God himself. That's why it becomes vitally important and why John the Baptist says, if you want to know what this is all about, uses very emphatic language. Every time he talks about, uh, you'll see the, the personal pronoun I mentioned in his statements. It's with emphasis. So, so I've told you before, in the Greek language, you can have the, the, the pronoun I included in the word. So the verb that, that's there for you, you just put an ending on it, and it's, it's known that it's first person singular. So it, it, it's I, and it's included in the way that you construct that word. But there also is the pronoun available, ego, which is like ego without one G. So lego my ego, there you go. You just got a Greek lesson today. That word, E-G-O, is what it would look like, ego, but it's, it, it's the personal pronoun, I, and when it's included in the, in the Greek, it's for emphasis. So he's saying, I, even I am not the Messiah, or I am this voice in the wilderness. That's very important, and we can't capture that always in the English why is John doing that? Why is not the, the writer John and John the Baptist saying it in this way? Don't make any mistake. There's only one reason why. Because it's about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, who is the promised provision of life and, and, the, and the, the, the proof of God's love in him alone. And so they don't, there, there's to be no mistake. So when they questioned him and they asked him, and this is where we left off last week, it's kind of doing one frame's not there, but he, he, the, the, it came up then, well, if you're not these people, then why are you baptizing? And John says, I'm only baptizing for one reason, to prepare the way. Baptism was not that unusual. But I do want to point out the fact that in the first century, most baptisms were administered by the person themselves. So they would go in, there might be someone uh, there if they were being converted into Judaism or there was some other uh, belief system. If they were baptized, they would walk into the waters of their own accord and they would basically baptize themselves. Where we're used to someone who is administering the baptism that was, that was the first century thing that was typical. So for John to be out in the river and actually administering baptism was, was unique, and it was a different situation. By what authority do you assume this position? Because it would have been uh, perceived to be that kind, of, that kind of statement. So John says, I'm only doing this for one reason, because I want you to hear what I have to say about the one who is following me. This isn't about me. This isn't even about what happens in, in, in the, the context of baptism. He says, I baptize with water. And we know from the other Gospels, there's this explanation that Jesus will baptize in the, the reality of, of his presence, the Holy Spirit. But he says, among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Found out something interesting about that statement um, that I did not know. If you were a disciple of someone, servants, servants and, and, and slaves, if they were designated that way, might you know, undo someone's shoe or whatever. But someone who claimed to be a follower or a disciple, even within the, there was a rabbinic tradition that said that 
They, they were required to do almost everything except touch their feet. That they, they did not require that of their disciples to actually undo their shoes or untie the, the, the sandal thong. John says, I'm not even fit to do the, the menial tasks that we're not required to do. It is, a, it is a, really a great statement of humility and points us forward to John 3 when John, there he says, I must decrease, but he must increase. So, so John is saying, I'm not assuming a position of authority here. All of this is about service, about pointing to something else. And, and it has nothing to do with me except that I have been called. God has even revealed to me that, that he's revealing his Messiah and I'm to be on that page. Nothing else. So this is a very, you know, they would have recognized that this is a statement that he says, I'm not worthy to do the very thing that I don't even, you know, that's counted as something we don't have to do. I'm not worthy to do that menial task. In verse 28, it says, this all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, not the Bethany of of, uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It was near Jerusalem. This would have been on the east side of the Jordan. We don't know exactly where that was, but that's just a, a little bit of trivia. That's where he was baptizing. Now, that's the first day. The first day he was questioned. The first day he begins this, this, and I told you this was going to unfold in days. This is uh, leading up to the wedding at Cana, the first sign. And we'll get this day, the next day, and, and, and this disclosure of, of, a, of a chronological move. And so it says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this this, uh, uh, uniqueness of all that John is doing and all that John is is, uh, doing in front of people, remember the religious leaders sent out their delegation, The, the Pharisees were a part of that. So from every angle... From the religious perspective, what are you doing? Who are you? People were going out to see him. People were going out to listen. And obviously, the word of mouth, they, they were talking about this message that he was giving and the uniqueness, the, the, the unique feature that, that's represented that he's presenting the kingdom of God. Well, they, they knew about that kind of discussion. They had those conversations. But their their explanation of God's kingdom was based on their traditions and their rules and the things that they had developed, not the person of the Messiah as God had had put him on display. And that's why they were missing him. That's the point of the early part of the, the prologue. He came to his own. His own didn't recognize him. They didn't receive him. But to as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become the children of God. This authority rests in the fact that God is faithful, that his promises are real, that his provision is real, and it's in the person of Jesus. So he says, I have this authority to baptize, but not for the reason you think. It's to point. It's to to put on display that God has indeed provided. So he points to the Messiah. This is his witness. So this Lamb of God phrase emerges. 
And again, I think that they would have all had these particular images, prob probably not all of them. Some would have thought of the Passover lamb and its purpose. Some would have thought of the sacrificial lambs that were part of, of that system. Uh, just, just the references in Isaiah 53, like a lamb led to slaughter. But again, there it's, it's, it, it's kind of a, a metaphor and a simile. that, it, So it, it's not precise as John is here. But I think his precision, again, comes from the fact that God was foreshadowing the absolute, uh, uh, and, and like we see in, in uh, Colossians, those are shadow pictures. The substance is Jesus. And so he says, the substance is here. You don't hang on to shadows. You hang on to the substance. And this is John's way of saying that. As Paul said it in Colossians, this is John's way of saying everything that God has been, been rehearsing with us, he's now brought it to pass. It's the real deal. We're off the practice stage. We're out of the, the we're, we're now in the game. And there isn't any other way to define it. God has, has made it so exact for us. And he, and he goes on to say, this is the one I meant. When I was talking about that guy, I said, a man who comes after me, but he's greater than me because he was before me. Whew. Yeah, just say that to somebody and, and watch the looks you get. Yeah, there's someone coming after me, but he's actually greater than me because he was before me. They probably, you know, if you're holding something, they're going to examine what you are drinking because that, that sounds like that kind of statement. What are you talking about? And he says, he says this is the one I was talking about that, that indeed fulfills everything that God has promised. And, and in just those ways, in just those ways, that's who Jesus is. So he says, I myself did not know him. Now he's you're thinking, well, he did know him. Yeah, but to know exactly this, all that he was as the Messiah, it's revealed to him. And that's what John's going to say. And this, again, I, I want us to understand there's going to be some things that John says that, that you, you think, well, how can that be? Except that, he, again, he says, I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. And then it says, John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I, I want us to, to start recognizing, and again, I'm going to point some of these things out. They might sound a little technical, but, but it's important for us to see that when, when, when they describe, and when he describes what he saw, he's not just talking about something that happened in the past. This, again, carries with it something that, that, that comes out of the Greek language. It's, it's the grammar. This is called a perfect tense in the verb form. And it means that it happened in the past, but it has ongoing repercussions and effect and impact. And you, you use it to be precise, to say, yes, I saw it then, but, but, it, but it has that continued impact. It remains true, in other words. It remains active. 
So for us, we, you know, we have past, present, and future. It's hard for us to capture, aside from descriptions, it's hard for us to capture that kind of language. If we say, yes, I saw it, but this is how important it is, we almost have to describe it in those ways. We don't have a word for I saw, a verb that, that carries with it that kind of, I, I think I'm right in saying that, darling. We don't have that kind of tense expressed in just the verb form. The Greek does. And, and again, we can't even capture it in English without a description of that, and sometimes we don't do that. This is what John the Baptist is saying. I saw it, but I want you to know that it, that it continues. It is real. It, it has that kind of impact. You, you want to see and know that it has that kind of influence and effect. Missing another frame there. It's trying to... Um, verse 33, I'll just read it while it... Uh, there it is. It says, I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. So notice what he says. God sent him to baptize, and he had some kind of instruction here to go and do this so that Jesus would be revealed. This is the way the Father wanted to do it. But he was told that the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify. Here's, here's that perfect tense again. In both of these words, I have seen and I testify, and capturing the idea that this is this is who I am. This is the, the reality that I live with. This is God's anointed one, God's chosen one. I think in some of your, uh, in some of the translations, it says that he's the son of God. There, there's some, just again, some of those places we've talked about where all of the manuscripts we have available, this is one of those places where it's God's anointed or, or his son, and they, they are... Um, equivalent, they are equal, but, but we, we just don't know which one would be the, the, so some translations will say God's chosen one, others you may see that he's the son of God, it's not a contradiction in any way, it is, it is a consistency, it is actually a, an equivalency that, that emerges, that helps us understand that he's the, he's the fullness of everything that God has promised. Look at what happens in verse 35, the very next day. And we're, we're trying to get through here to too many is what we're trying to get through. I'm not, I'm not good at covering a lot of material like that. Well, let's just, let's just do here what, and, and get through here. We'll get down to... Um, I mentioned last week, we'll just get down through the next uh, three or four verses. So the next day, and this is, this is unique, uh, a unique feature in this first week that we see uh, with John the Baptist. There were again two of his disciples. This is a strange thing that, uh, there it is. On mine, it's a blank screen and it's taking a moment to load. But he says, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, behold the Lamb of God again. And even this word, look, John uses it 17 or 18 times in his gospel. You can take all the other gospels in every, and go through all of it. He uses this word more than all of them combined. This idea of, hey, pay attention. Because that's what it means. It doesn't just mean glance at something or, hey, look over here. It means look at it, behold it. 
examine it. And he says, look, the Lamb of God. And, and right then his disciples, when the two heard this, they, they followed Jesus. And this is where Jesus turns around and he says to them, the very first recorded words of Jesus in the Gospel of John, they're going to blow you away. What do you want? Now, I, I mean, you could say that in a lot of ways. I don't, I don't exactly think that's um, how Jesus said it. I don't think he turned around and goes, what do you want? I, I think that he was, um, he was actually asking them, come on. I think he was actually asking them to, to examine what, what they want. So I can, I can envision him turning around and, and looking circumspectly, you know, it's kind of probably from their perspective looking right through them, but saying, what do you want? What are you after? And they said, Rabbi, Ravi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Where do you live? Now, I think Jesus' question is, like, didn't they see that coming? Their answer is just as, <laughs> as like, really? You're asked by the Lamb of God, what do you want? And you go, we just want to know where you're staying. <laughs> you get good rates? Or, you know, is it, they, you know, I, I'm like, really? That's, but, but again, it, it helps us understand that this is very genuine. They didn't know what they wanted. And I think it's going to be ironic that they're asking the one through whom you learn to live and what God has provided in, in that life, where are you staying? So he says, well, come on, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Now, I don't know that there's any significance in that. We've seen this before, and I, I kind of laugh at it. I'm like, so? <laughs> why, why tell us that? I, I, I want us to see something that, that is deeper than just the description. Jesus did not go and, and begin to do some form of, of trickery or and we don't have the details. This would be a great time to throw in details. He spent time with them. He talked to them. He spent the day with them. He is the, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, the Anointed One of God who is providing this life, this eternal life. And Jesus spent the day with people. Two guys that just were curious and wanted to know. It's amazing to me. And that would have ended that day. Around 4 or 5, you, you start approaching the evening hour. Remember, in, in, in the, the Hebrew uh, calendar, the day ends in the evening, and the next day begins at sunset of that, of that day. And so... So they were ending the day, and he just spent the day, they spent the day together. Jesus cared enough to take that time to be with them. Um, let's, let's end there, and we'll pick up with verse 40 next week, and, and some of this will accelerate. And the reason we take some time through this 
Will it accelerate? Chapter 2 will, will be a little faster. When we get to places like chapter 3 in the discussion with Nicodemus, you have to take your time. He's talking to a religious leader, and you have to step back and say, you know, he, he's got one agenda. Jesus just says you have to be born again. But I want you to see the absolute certainty with which Jesus presents himself just as John presents him in his proclamation, bearing witness, testifying that this is the one. There isn't another, the anointed one. That was understood. It's, it's implied when you said that someone was the anointed one, it wasn't the, the anointed one of today, there'll be another one tomorrow, or the anointed one of, of this year, and you know, no, he is the anointed one. Jesus is not going to back away from that claim, even though we hear today that he never claimed to be the Son of God, we're going to see that that's absolutely not true, we're, or that he didn't he was a Messiah figure, but wasn't really presenting himself as the Messiah. That is absolutely not true. In every place, in every way, that's exactly what he presented. And so the claims of, of this culture, that if they would just go and, and examine him, behold him, he would say, come and see. He would say, well, let's spend the day together. I, I, I think that, for me, that's one of the, the aspects of all of this that becomes very intriguing. You know, the father, I think that's really all he wants is people to say, I want to know if this is true, and he'd say, well, let's spend the day together. Let's examine the claims of Jesus. We, we, have this in, we have this unique place where we're offered this, the life and love of the Father in such a precise way. When you present the precision of the message, we're accused today of being exclusive and pushing people away. No, the message by its very nature doesn't push anybody. It invites, it embraces, it pulls people in. It's the only message that does that. It doesn't care where you've been. It doesn't care what family you're born into. It doesn't care what, what part of the world you live in. And God is always on mission to reveal the fact that that's who he is. And it's, and it's a, a, a clear revelation, a precise revelation in the person of Jesus alone. The world's not like us, by the way. They're I mentioned Iran. They're hearing about Jesus and learning of Jesus, and there, there are people who have dreams. There are people who just hear about it and examine it. It intrigued me that it was the women who are the most suppressed, repressed part of that society, and they're the ones that are saying, we're followers of Jesus, and they're praying for these, the men of, of Iran and and and. By the dozens, I, I don't know the exact number. They're not going to know the exact number, but it is the fastest growing Christian community in the world. And it's a closed community. You're not allowed. It's illegal. But God's not limited by that. The love of Jesus is not limited by those things. We create limitations. We, we revel in our unbelief. 
And I see that happen. I watch these debates with the, the, the atheists who are so proud and they revel in unbelief and how smart they are because they don't believe in God and this mythical father in the sky, Santa Claus in the sky. They have a lot of adjectives for him. But the father who loves them and sent his son to die for them is not part of that description. So it, it, on one hand, it's refreshing to hear the other who loves the Lord and say, I don't believe because he's the, the one who grants wishes. I, I believe because he's the one who's granted life. The idea that, I, I guess also this fact that it's exclusively in Jesus is something that for me is an encouragement. If it, if it were in a dozen different places, what would that mean to us? And I've actually heard that as an excuse not to believe. In other words, Jesus was raised from the dead. Oh, I don't believe that. We've never seen anyone resurrected from the dead. And, and the one man said, well, no, of course you haven't. It happened once because it's in him. Well, no one believes that. No. And, and he even looked to the crowd and he said, there isn't anybody here who actually believes that Jesus rose from the dead. That's nonsense. That's that's the limitations we place on ourselves. And folks, you're not foolish for believing in who Jesus is. Not at all. And John the Baptist didn't offer theological explanations. He offered the the truth of saying, follow him. And when asked, what do you want? And when they came up with some I could think of a hundred different things they could have said to Jesus. They said, well, we just want to know where you're staying. We'll come and see. Make that. That's what he's saying to folks. Come and see. Don't be afraid to, to live in that invitation. Hey, come and see. Let's examine it. And if you, if you walk away saying, ah, oh, it's, you know, that's, that's up to you. But I've looked at it and said, I, I have to be there. There is no place else. That's what's at stake. So what do you know? John, the Baptist, what do you know? John, the apostle, what do you know? I know that Jesus is the Son of God, the anointed one, who is the promised provision of life from God the Father himself, and that when I believe in him, that life is given to me. That's what I know. Keep, it's going to keep unfolding for us. Let's stay attentive. Let's keep examining those claims. Be, you know, be the skeptic if you want. Come at it from uh, the place of, of you know, the devil's advocate, if you will, that, that no, this, I, I, I challenge anyone to do that. I think that it, it stands on its own merit, and it becomes exciting to see that those those places don't have a, a foot to, to stand on. They don't have a leg to stand on. Let's continue to worship as we sing. And this is Jesus, I come. And I just couldn't get that out of my, my mind. Come and see. Just Remember when Peter, when Jesus um, came to them after the resurrection and they were out fishing and, and he was on the beach and 
he fixed breakfast for them. And what did he say to them when he came up, when they came up? Come and eat. Uh, it's, it's like so simple. He's just saying, come to me. Just, I, I'm, I'm approachable. That's what I'm here for. So Jesus, I come. Let's make that our prayer this morning. And if you haven't done that, please, as we said last week, confess, this is Jesus. I believe you. I take you at your word. I'm going to put my faith and trust in you. I want the life that you give. Make that confession today. And Father, that is so encouraging to us that that is the presentation of your son, the promised life giver, the, 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 your, your son and savior, the lamb of God. You invite us to come as we are, not because we know all the right words or the right questions, just to hear Jesus say, come and see. Come and behold. Father, may we live with that truth in our hands and always, always expressing that, that truth in terms of, of just wanting to be near. You don't promise that every day is going to be wonderful or everything's going to be fine or the circumstances will be just the way we want. In fact, we know that that's not going to be always the case, but what will always be true is that in Christ we are yours forever, so that in the midst of those things, you invite us to come. Sometimes it's just to rest, to be in your arms. So Father, we take you at your word, we trust you as you speak to us this morning, as we receive anew the invitation to come and see. We love you. We thank you for loving us. Father, for those who have uh, renewed a decision, made a decision, decision uh, to follow in that way, bless them with your strength and your joy and your peace. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.